This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This program contains a frank description of the results of the United States' decision to firebomb the city of Tokyo in its efforts to end the fighting in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is James Scott. He's the author of Black Snow, Curtis LeMay, The Firebombing of Tokyo, and The Road to the Atomic Bomb. We've had James on the show before uh, with his earlier book, Rampage, MacArthur, Yamashita, and The Battle of Manila. Both books are detailed chronicles of rather horrifying events during World War II. All right, James, a little bit about you and your background for our listeners, please. You live in Charleston? Absolutely. Yeah, I live in Charleston. Uh, went to Wofford College right up the road in Spartanburg. Did my master's in military history. Are, are you a native? I uh, grew up in Charlotte, but uh, ever since you know, ever since going to college, I've pretty much been in the state nonstop. I started as a, a journalist at the Rock Hill Herald, moved on to the Post and Courier in Charleston, and uh been been there ever since. All right. So are you still with the Post and Courier? No, I left about 15 years ago when I started writing books. And Black Snow is actually my fifth book. Uh, four of the five are all on World War II history in the uh, Pacific Theater. Now, you said you studied military history at Wofford? Uh, well, at Wofford, I was English and Spanish. I did military history at the Citadel for oh. my master's. Okay. Yeah. So what led you to the bombing of Tokyo? Well, you know, I did my a previous book, Target Tokyo, looking at Jimmy Doolittle and his raid against Tokyo in April of uh, 1942, which was sort of this effort to rally the American public in sort of those dark hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so I was looking there, you know, Doolittle's raid obviously was a uh, more of a psychological attack. And so I wanted to kind of pick that story up again, uh, looking at our efforts to attack Tokyo in the latter part of the war. And, of course, that then factors in with Curtis LeMay and sort of the advances in technology right. and whatnot. And I guess we need to remind our listeners or even let them know that, of course, Doolittle's raiders trained here at what's now the Columbia Metropolitan Airport just across the river. And, of course, it was a very much a psychological raid. But popular books after the war, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, movies. But the raid didn't do much physical damage to the city. No, exactly. I mean, it was just a handful of bombers, you know, attacking a, a city that spreads across over 200 square miles. So, uh, which was a, a great contrast to the latter days of the war when we would send, you know, as many as 500, even up to a thousand bombers a night over Tokyo and other Japanese industrial okay. cities. And Tokyo was one of the largest cities in the world. Absolutely. And one of the densest. It had a population density of 135,000 people per square mile in some areas. All right. And, and let's talk about the construction of the city. People think of modern Tokyo, but the Tokyo of 1944 was pretty much the Tokyo of 1844. Exactly. I mean, you think of people think of Tokyo and they think of these glass and steel high rises and whatnot that we see today. But the reality was the majority of the buildings were one and two story wooden structures. Uh, literally 98 percent of the city was made out of wood and paper, um, you know, sliding screen uh, doors, you know, wooden construction, just a very different world than what we're used to today. And of course, very flammable with all that wood and paper. Yeah. Even though part of the city had been rebuilt after the horrible earthquake in the 1930s, there were a few very large, supposedly earthquake-proof buildings, including schools and hospitals. But as you say, the rest of the city was a matchbox. That's the way some people looked at it. I mean, wood paper and frequently oiled paper. Correct. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the thing with Tokyo is it, it sort of had a, a, a business district, but it was almost like a, uh, imagine it like a Hollywood backdrop, sort of a set, if you will. And uh, and so when you, you had your business district and you had a handful of your, your concrete and rebar construction uh, buildings like hospitals and schools, but so much of it was actually was this far more primitive wood and paper construction going back literally centuries, so to speak, in the, the Japanese architectural styles. And although there were several large industrial plants or facilities in and around the city, Japan still was operating small shops scattered throughout town. You know, every neighborhood had sh small shops that produced a few things that all went into the uh, supply chain, as we would say today, to create 
airplane engines, what have you. Yeah, exactly. Almost 50% of Tokyo's industrial output came from these small cottage industries. And it would be, you know, a small a small house building, literally the pen that would be used in a hand grenade or the trigger that might be used in a gun. So it was really these 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 were tiny feeder factories that were often done literally in the downstairs of a, of a, of a building while the residents lived above. I mean, many of these places employed less than five, five workers, you know, and, and, and they didn't have zoning like we have today, where you think of, you know, you put your residential areas in one spot, you put your your industrial areas in another, your your, your retail in another. It was all intermixed, and so you just had this massive sort of sea of wooden structures that did everything from residences and schools to small shops. So it's just a big mix. James, when we think about Tokyo in 1944, it's not just that the construction was what it had been for literally centuries, but the Tokyo of today with its wide boulevards and what have you. That was not the case. If you think back to the uh, the TV movies like Shogun, those nar- basically narrow lanes instead of streets. So not only were the buildings flammable, but there was not much separating one from another. Exactly. I mean, the average street was maybe 12 feet wide. And so, and and, and these were really more like alleyways that sort of cut through this, this these dense residential areas. And so, you didn't have fire breaks so that if a fire broke out, there was no, there was nothing really to stop it from just jumping over these small alleyways. And the, the flip side of that as well is also that they're so small that you can't easily get firefighting equipment through there, yeah. trucks and things like that. But also means if, if there's an emergency, they can't be much of an exit for the people who live uh, there. And and at one point, you compared the population density of Tokyo in 1944 to New York at the time. I can't remember, but could you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's literally, um, I mean, Tokyo, of course, is one of the largest cities in the world, but the population density is what really separates it from New York, London, and Washington, and things like that. I mean, you have 135,000 people per square mile. I mean, that's up to 10 times as many as you would have had, for example, in the nation's capital here. Wow. So, so when a fire breaks out, it's and as you said, these alleyways they become choke points, these bottlenecks for people trying to flee. Let's move now to the the war in the Pacific, late nineteen forty four into nineteen forty five, and of course by nineteen forty five, Germany is on the ropes. And what kind of bombing had we been doing in Europe? America was really um, we we had developed this bombing strategy during the time between World War One and World War Two, in which we used high altitude precision bombing. And so the idea being that a modern society, uh, a modern economy. Uh, it was like a house of cards. And if you could bomb a certain factory or a certain industry, whether it was oil refining capabilities, things like that, you could completely knock out a nation's warfighting capability and sort of collapse it like a house of cards. Nice theory. Nice theory, exactly. And it was also seemed to be more more moral. It was a way in which you didn't have the high civilian casualties that you would have during what was called area bombing or fire bombing. So, but of course, the rubber meets the road when the war breaks out. And you realize that a modern nation's economy is far more complex. It's far more uh, sophisticated. An enemy can disperse their factories elsewhere. They can uh, bring in new raw materials from occupied countries and whatnot. So this this idea, this sort of panacea bombing, as some called it at the time, really just it just doesn't match up. And of course, the whole thing about high altitude bombing is for the protection of the bombers. Correct. And in Europe, that was very important. The 8th Air Force had a horrible attrition rate. They did. And the idea, again, when the B-17 was developed, which was the dominant bomber we used in Europe, the idea being that it had great armor and it had a lot of machine guns and that it could protect itself and that you didn't need long-range fighters that could accompany it. And, of course, the unknown equation of that was the German Air Force. And, of course, the Luftwaffe were like aerial Rottweilers, and they pounced on these bombers every time they crossed into German airspace. And we had massive attrition rates. Uh, I mean, bombers were going down on every single mission. And it, and it was very demoralizing to the crews uh, because every time you you went and if you didn't hit the target, you know, you had to you had to fly that mission again. And it just the, the attrition rates and whatnot. I mean, it was a, it was a really a brutal fight. High altitude bombing, despite the fact that we had the new bomb site and other things, it wasn't particularly accurate. No, it wasn't at all. And so uh, and, 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 and so there were there, there was 
all these challenges. You had the the accuracy, you had the German Luftwaffe, you had, I mean, just the, the crew fatigue and the morale and whatnot. And so all of that, of course, led the British to eventually abandon high-altitude precision bombing in 1942 and switch to firebombing. And of course, that's when they went after cities like Hamburg and Dresden and, and really began to burn German cities. Okay. And when you drop incendiary bombs, they're different from the explosives. And again, I think that's an explanation we need. Yeah, exactly. I mean, incendiary bombs are designed to create and fires, essentially. They are designed to to wield fire like its own weapon. And so they would frequently come in and you would use traditional demolition bombs in order to blow out doorways and rooftops and things like that in order to allow air to move through. And then you drop incendiaries, which start fires. And those fires grow bigger and bigger. And then essentially the hope is that you eventually create a firestorm, which is all that escaping heat rising up pulls in colder air from the sides and it literally creates almost like its own weather system essentially. And it feeds then on a city and essentially burns everything in its path. And of course, part of the incendiary bombs are potassium, mm-hmm. which you can't put it out with water. Exactly. You know, these things would, in some cases, would burn and smolder for days, even weeks. So. Uh, and I guess for modern listeners, if you see the videos of the great forest fires out in the West Coast now that have created their own thermal storms. Exactly. exactly. And that's what it is. It, a firestorm really is its, its own weather system, so to speak. I mean, the, the escaping air and, and heat is rising upward. And of course, nature looks for a vacuum. And so with all that escaping air and whatnot, it pulls in air and oxygen from the perimeter of the fire. And those speeds as that air is rushing to the center can sometimes reach hurricane force speeds. And so it literally will topple trees, it'll topple utility poles, it'll, it'll pull a baby out of a mother's arms. I mean, it's really a, a, a catastrophic type fire. And over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit? Oh, it can go even higher than that. I mean, in uh, in, in Tokyo, we uh, it, it burned in spots hot enough of, of almost twenty eight hundred degrees in oh spots, God. which is literally hot enough to begin to break down concrete, to melt concrete, to warp sliding boards and elevator shafts. I mean, steel beams, things like that, fuse coins together in people's pockets. Yeah. So they they had this example of, of what was going on in in Europe uh, towards the end of the war. Of course, in the Pacific. The commander out of the Air Force out there at that point was General Haywood Hansel. Correct. Yeah. And he was a product of the, of the fight in Europe. I mean, he was also, he was really a planner and an academic. And so he was one of the architects of America's whole bombing strategy and the, and the concept of high altitude precision bombing. And he was also a big believer that it, it, it would save lives of the enemy, that you didn't, you really didn't want to have civilian deaths. And so he had come from the war in, in Europe and transferred over to the war in the Pacific, which of course course, ended up being a very different type of air war. His boss was General Hap Arnold. Hap Arnold, who was the uh, commander of the Army Air Forces. Who had a couple of other missions besides winning the war. <laughs> yeah, Hap Arnold, exactly. He's, he's really one of the more fascinating characters in, in World War II in that he is a true American aviation pioneer. He actually learned how to fly from Orville and Wilbur Wright. I mean, that's, and so that kind of also shows you how new aviation really was and that you could have a a commander who literally had learned how to fly uh, from the Wright brothers. I mean, the the fact that early pilots actually wore goggles was because Hap Arnold had, on landing, had a bug hit his eye. And so, I mean, so he goes from flying with the Wright brothers to just a few decades later, commanding the largest global strike force the world has ever seen. And of course, he wants aviation to no longer be part of the army. He wants an independent air force separate of the army, because at that time, it was an arm of the army. It was the U.S. Army Air Corps. Uh, And he was a disciple of Billy Mitchell. Absolutely. Uh, an Army Air Corps officer uh, who was court-martialed for pushing his beliefs. Absolutely. And he was truly one of those early air pioneers who was pushing, who saw, you know, that coming out of World War One, and saw, you know, the, the trenches and whatnot and just the, you know, filled with mud and rats and sort of the, the, the impasse that went on for years. And they saw aviation as a way to sort of leap over those trenches and to turn an enemy nation in its totality into a battlefield. And in order to do that, though, you needed to have a service that was run by aviators who understood aviation and who were not tied to an army who for, you know, generations and generations had been sort of led by infantrymen. 
So you needed to have a service run by aviators. And, and, and that's, I mean, aviation is really, between World War I and World War II, I mean, it is one of the most transformative forms of warfare. I mean, really since gunpowder. I mean, it, because it transforms a battlefield into a whole new dimension, into the heavens. And so, you know, and the Navy, of course, had long since, they were, they were the arm of the, the American military that could project power overseas. And now you have the, the Air Force coming in saying, hey, we can also take the battle straight to the enemy's capital. Okay. James, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. I'm talking with James Scott about his new book, Black Snow, Curtis LeMay, The Firebombing of Tokyo, and The Road to the Atomic Bomb. Okay. So we, we've got uh, General Hansel in charge, Hap Arnold, who is chief of air services. He has a new weapon that is his dream for making this projection of air power, the B-29 bomber. Now, you talked about earlier in Europe, we're using B-17s. We've got to jump through how many iterations before we get to the B-29? Exactly. Well, the B-17 was known as the Flying Fortress, and the B-29 was known as the Super Fortress. And its name alone tells you everything you need to know. It's bigger. It's better. It can carry more. It can go farther. It is a hemispheric bomber. It literally has a tail that rises three stories off the ground. It has a wingspan of 141 feet. That's longer than the Wright brothers' first flight. And it can also fly 4,000 miles. So it's really a bomber built for war in the Pacific, of course, which is spread out over millions of square miles. It's islands and things like that. So you really need a bomber that can bridge those great distances. And that was it. And it's also the first pressurized military bomber. So for the first time, pilots can fly without having to wear heated flight suits and things like that. Well, I was going to say, many of the accounts that I have read, the diaries of pilots in Europe during World War II, talk about the freezing cold. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, when you're up at, at, you know, five miles over, I mean, it's, it's 40 below zero. I mean, if you, if you get hit by shrapnel, I mean, your wound can freeze. So the airmen in, in Europe were not only fighting the German Luftwaffe and everything else, they're fighting the elements on this frigid, heavenly battlefield. And the Pacific's totally different. I mean, these guys are now able to fly in a, uh, in their shirt sleeves. I mean, they're, 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 the comfort level is, is, is much higher, which of course is key because these missions are so much longer. Just one way to Tokyo is the same as flying from London to Berlin and back. So the distances are far greater. Well, we have to basically get within range of the, uh, of the Japanese mainland. And of course, that's where the battle for the Mariana Islands in the summer of 1944 becomes so vital. And those islands, of course, are Guam, Saipan, and Tinian. And they, for the first time, put American bombers within range of Tokyo. And of course, it is a grueling fight to retake those islands because the Japanese know that America, they have looked and seen what has happened to German cities, and they know that the closer America gets, the greater their invulnerability is to that type of bombing. And the Mariana Islands gives our bombers the chance to take off and hit Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya. And this is with the new B-29 or using B-24s and older? This is the B-29 because it's a 3,000-mile round-trip flight from the Mariana Islands to Tokyo. So imagine 16, 17 hours on these flights over ocean the entire way. And today we talk about supply chains, but getting that many bombers made and shipped to the Pacific was an incredible industrial feat in itself. Yeah, it really is. And that's also one of the fascinating stories. I mean, the B-29 was such an advanced bomber at its time that it was the single most expensive weapon system of World War II. I mean, developing that bomber and building it cost more than the atomic bomb. In order to build it in such mass quantities to be able to help win the war, we actually had to build an entire city in Kansas called Plainview, Kansas, in order just to house all the workers. I mean, this city had thousands of homes. They had to build elementary schools, movie theaters, all of this just to house the, you know, the thousands of workers who were hammering out these bombers week after week. And then, of course, they have to be ferried out to the Pacific. Exactly. And then you've got to get them out there in big numbers. You can't just have a few, you know, 10, 20, 30. You need to have them out there by the hundreds. And so not just the, the bomber, the pilots, which becomes a critical issue, yeah. but then the ground crews. I mean, these things have to be maintained if you're going to have basically round-the-clock bombing or at least sorties every 24 hours. Somebody's got to 
take care of these babies. And, and, they, and they're sort of the underappreciated heroes here. I mean, a B-29 had about 55,000 parts, okay? And any one of those parts can fail. So imagine what your supplies have to be out in the Mariana Islands, that when planes come back, you could have any, you could have routine mechanical failures, but you also have to repair flak damage. Uh, Bombay doors often got all banged up. I mean, engines would go out. So you had to have all these supplies on hand in order to keep this constant sort of revolving door of planes in the skies over, over the enemy. And um, yes, you got to have all those supplies, but you're dealing with the tropical climate. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just an incredible backstory. Yeah, and it's also the coral dust. I mean, people don't even think of that because, you know, here they are, they're leveling these islands. I mean, they're using dynamite just day after day and blowing up to sort of create these 8,500-foot runways. And, of course, as you blow up all this coral, you create massive amounts of dust. Well, anybody who's ever worked with machinery knows dust is your enemy. And so here you are trying to maintain these planes just in a sea of dust and everything else as well and the elements. All right. James, we're getting the runways built. So when do we get those three islands? Because those are the three takeoff points, Saipan, Guam, and Tenen. Correct. We get those in the summer of 44. And then literally within days of American troops landing on those islands, the aviation engineers come ashore to start building all the, the runways, the hard stands, this, the, the, the supply depots. So from the summer of 44, it, it, all that goes on up until November of 44. And by November, we begin the first missions uh, against the Japanese homeland, which is really incredible to think about how fast we were able to get the islands and turn them around into bases to begin the fight. And, and it took, of course, getting enough of those those planes out there. We talked about ferrying them out, which means literally you're on the West Coast, then you go to Honolulu. Correct. You just basically have to fly all the way out there. Fortunately, of course, it's a, it's a plane with a long range, so it, yeah. can, it can make that, that flight easier than, say, a B-24 or B-25 might have been able to and, do. And besides the parts, the workers, you got to ferry in enough fuel. It's it's incredible. It's, it's and, and that's also the, I mean the Navy of course grows resentful of the Air Force because the Navy is, is sort of the ones that are having to help bring in all this kind of stuff. I mean, and also the bombs. I mean, you have to bring in shiploads and shiploads of ordnance as well. So it's you know it's the fuel, it's the bombs, it's the toilet paper, it's the toothpaste, and it's all of that because you're not only are you maintaining all of these planes and whatnot, you're also having to maintain the, the lives of all the airmen and the ground crews. And so General Haywood Hansel is out there and he wants to do precision bombing. Exactly. And, you know, he is, of course, so married to this idea, to this strategy that he has helped develop. But unfortunately, he runs into unique conditions in Japan that he did not encounter in Germany, which make that job increasingly more difficult. Um, the weather over Japan, of course, is frequently cloudy. And if you're trying to do daylight precision bombing in which you're having to sight your target from five miles up ahead, you can't see through clouds. So you can't see your target. Furthermore, they discover for the first time jet streams that rage. It, it speeds over 200 miles per hour in the heavens over Japan. And of course, these totally wreck bombing accuracy. So I mean, the idea of precision bombing just doesn't work with clouds and heavy jet streams. And also because they're doing daylight, the Japanese still, they've got anti-aircraft, uh, and they still have fighters. Exactly. And not only can the Japanese see to shoot at you, their fighters can see you. Uh, so, I mean, you're really, like in Germany, you know, you're, ba you're battling the enemy, you're, and you're also battling the elements. And the combination of those things just, it, 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 it guarantees you will not be successful. And that's exactly what happens to Haywood Hansel. And Arnold has bet his future and that of the soon-to-be Air Force on this B-29 bombing campaign, and it's not doing anything. Exactly. He has sold the American public on this plane as a war-winning weapon, that with this, we can bring the Japanese to their knees. And what he finds in these first few few months of missions is that it's simply not working. And so what does he do? Well, he is increasingly beginning to pressure Hansel to adopt the strategies that the British should use, which is firebombing. Uh, but of course, Hansel is just morally opposed to doing that. And so his reluctance to try new techniques, coupled with his inability to, to knock out Japan's factories, and uh, leads to him being fired. I mean, Arnold, and, and, and that's a tough decision because Arnold had worked very closely with Hansel for years. He'd in fact been his chief of staff at one point, And he makes the decision that I'm going to have to let you go. And he fires him, and he replaces him with Curtis LeMay. LeMay also is an early pioneer in, a, in terms of aviation. 
LeMay is. Yeah, he's a really fascinating character. I mean, he um, – and he's the complete opposite of Haywood Hansel. I mean, Hansel had sort of, you know, grown up sort of in a military family. Uh, you know, he was a, a thinker and an intellectual, wrote poetry. I mean, Curtis LeMay had grown up dirt poor. Uh, his mother had the highest education in the family, and she'd only made it through the eighth grade. He'd spent his childhood bouncing around from state to state with his father who could never hold down a job. He ultimately had to put himself through school by working all night in a steel mill in Ohio just to be able to pay for his own uh, own college. So he was a real pragmatic individual um, with an engineering background and an incredibly dogged work ethic. Somebody with this background, given the way the officer corps in the U.S. Army was between world wars. Uh, how did he manage to rise up to be a general officer? Through his talent, in fact. He was, um, you know, LeMay had, like so many others in that that generation, sort of, you know, aviation was just fascinating. I mean, you had Jimmy Doolittle, you had uh, you had Amelia Earhart, you, you know, you had Charles Lindbergh, all these people. So he naturally gravitated, like many others, to aviation. But when he got into the air service, he turned out to be really good. Uh, and he turned out to be a really great combat commander early on in World War II. He was sent, soon after the war breaks out, he's sent to, to Germany, where he uses that engineering mind of his and he helps pioneer better formations to protect bombers as they're flying. He also figures out that German artillery is not as accurate as people had feared it was. And so he he really helps problem solve the 8th Air Force's early challenges with, with Germany. And as a result of that, he gets noticed and he gets promotions and he rises up through the ranks to the point where he's considered really one of the top combat commanders in World War II. And so Arnold taps him to head the air war in the Pacific. Exactly. So he comes in to take Haywood Hansel's place to try and bring that 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 troubleshooting mind of his to this dilemma of how best to bomb Japan. Okay. Now, one of the sources that you used and historians love is the fact he was writing his wife home almost every day. Oh yeah, a letter. Uh, and I love that. And that's the that's the beauty. And, and and thankfully, people like LeMay and Jimmy Doolittle was another one just like him. Who and they kept everything. LeMay has two hundred boxes in, in the in the Library of Congress of all his papers, and those letters are an absolute goldmine because they show the great personal sacrifice that he made for this war. I mean, he had a young daughter whom he rarely saw throughout the war. So much so that when he finally gets a break and he comes home to see her. Even though it's a freezing cold night in Ohio, she insists that he sits on the front porch swing with her because she wants the other kids to see that she actually has a father. He's writing letters home being like, tell me about her birthday party. What was it like? And he's often writing about how tired he is and the fact that he's up all night and he never gets sleep. So there's this public perception of him as this sort of callous individual and whatnot. But his men really loved him. And they understood that there was sort of a method to his madness. That when he said, look, we're going to change things up and all, it was because he had studied the problem and figured out how best to solve it. And so they really trusted him. I mean, one of his guys said this great quote. He said, if LeMay told me two plus two was five, I'd believe him. (laughs) That was one of my favorites. Okay. And he basically, Arnold has given him free reign to make decisions. He makes this decision on, we're going to firebomb Tokyo. Exactly. But he doesn't do it right away. And because Hansel says to LeMay, because they knew each other. In fact, Hansel had been LeMay's boss in Europe. And Hansel actually wrote one of the accommodation letters for LeMay that's in his personnel file. And so when LeMay shows up there, Hansel is this great Southern gentleman in that he doesn't blame LeMay, but he does give LeMay a warning. He says, I hope you will continue doing what I'm doing, which is precision bombing, because in the end, we will be judged not by whether we win the war, but by how we win the war. And LeMay agrees. And LeMay begins initially by doing exactly what Hansel did which is high-altitude precision bombing. And he starts tinkering with it. He starts trying to figure out how he can work around the weather, the jet streams, and things like that. Maybe we go a little lower. Maybe we go at a different time of day. And this is daytime bombing still. Exactly. But what he comes to realize over the course of the next six, seven weeks is that there isn't a solution, that Japan is a, a, a unique equation that can't be solved with precision bombing, and that if we're going to win the war, and if that we are going to you know, be able to bring Japan to its knees— before an invasion is necessary. And that's the key because, you know, we had seen how how brutal the Japanese were on a battlefield. We'd fought them all the way across the Pacific on islands like Tarawa and Iwo Jima, the city of Manila. 
we were trying to prevent having to invade. And air power was the key to bring the Japanese to their knees without having hundreds of thousands of Americans killed or wounded on their beaches. Okay. So what trial runs does he do before the big raid on Tokyo, which occurred in March 45? Of course, you know, LeMay, of course, with his, his engineering mindset, he doesn't just willy-nilly change out tactics. He begins to experiment. And he flies a couple of sort of trial runs, so to speak, on a much smaller scale in which he tinkers with the altitude and he tinkers with the types of bombs we're using. And he flies one against Kobe and a small one against Tokyo. And he's also testing to see kind of what are the Japanese defenses and things like that, because he's studying not only how well do the bombs work, you know, against the Japanese buildings and things like that, but also what are the Japanese defenses? You know, if we drop our altitude down low, is there is there anti-aircraft fire going to be ready for it? What if we go to nighttime? Are they going to have nighttime fighters and things like that? So he's really studying the whole equation. And by doing that, he comes to realize that this whole new plan, this whole new way of attacking Japan that he thinks could be the solution to the problem that has been there. And that is a low-altitude, nighttime fire raid directly on the capital of Japan, Tokyo. And it's a complete change of American strategy at that point. And it's, it's LeMay's idea. It's, his, it's sort of his, his brainchild, so to speak. Okay. We're not doing precision bombing, but one thing with Tokyo, there were some off-limits in terms of dropping bombs. Yeah, I mean, we we knew there were some prisoner of war camps that were around, uh, but we knew where those were located for the most part. And we had also done um, our war planners. I mean, even though the switch to firebombing really happens on this one raid, American war planners had planned for this possibility. And so they had done very detailed studies of Japan's cities, including Tokyo, so that we knew where the greatest density was, where the biggest fires could be started, where the greatest amounts of cottage industries were and things like that. So that when LeMay makes that decision, he has lots of data to draw from. What about the Imperial Palace grounds? He doesn't want to he doesn't want to hit the uh, Imperial Palace either, because, of course, that's going to that's going to rally the Japanese people to their leader. And what he's trying to do is sow division. I mean, he wants to knock out these cottage industries, but he also wants to turn the people against their leaders. And if you directly attack the emperor, who is a, sort of the supreme deity in the Japanese uh, public, uh, for the Japanese public, you're, you're going to have the adverse effect. So he, he pushes the imperial palace out of his target area, just to the edge. Okay. James, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. I'm talking with James Scott about his new book, Black Snow, Curtis LeMay, The Firebombing of Tokyo, and The Road to the Atomic Bomb. This program contains a frank description of the results of the United States' decision to firebomb the city of Tokyo in its efforts to end the fighting in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Listener discretion is advised. James, we're getting ready to have this raid on Tokyo. And so our planners, how do they create the target? So, yeah, so they basically, it's, it's, it's almost like a rectangle. It's about 12 square miles. But from the air, it kind of looks like a uh, sort of like a jigsaw piece. And that area covers some of the greatest densities of Tokyo. So you're literally looking at about an average of 103,000 people per square mile. So the idea then is that you're going to come in with Pathfinder bombers that are going to start sort of your first fires with four main target areas inside this rectangle. And then everybody else is going to follow in behind them and use those early fires as sort of their homing beacon, so to speak. The incendiaries explode before they hit the ground, right? Correct. And this is, um, you know, we had actually developed a new type of incendiary bomb. I mean, napalm, which is a pretty common word today, actually was developed during World War II and was the type of incendiary that we were using. And so these bombs that we were dropping actually were designed so that they, they would penetrate the roof of a building and then, and then they would blow out napalm from the tail. And that, that could actually go hundreds of feet. And then that jellied substance would then ignite. Of course, Japanese roofs were made out of metal and often tile. So you needed to get these incendiaries into homes where the flammable material was. And so LeMay... LeMay, of course, at this point, he's really stewing about all this because this is a radical shift. Uh, and not only that, his, his own staff is telling him that, hey, if we're wrong, you could end up losing 70% of your force on this. Okay, so he's going to send literally almost every plane in his arsenal and almost every airman in his, in his, uh, in his roster against Tokyo for this mission. And some of his own people are telling him this could be catastrophic if you're wrong. 
And so 70% of 300 planes, I mean, you're literally looking at, you know, 2,000 lives of his airmen there. So, of course, all this is weighing on him, but he makes that decision that that he's confident in his analysis. This is what is amazing today when, you know, uh, the Vietnam War, which was fought by colonels up over, you know, over the poor lieutenant on the ground. LeMay was given the authority to do this. Exactly. And he's 38 years old. Yeah. I mean, he's 38 years old. He's all the way out on, on, on Guam and the Mariana Islands. And he, he doesn't have to get approval from the president, from Congress, from anybody up above him to make this significant shift in an American sort of strategy and how we attack Japan. He just does it. And of course, he's really guided more than anything by his concerns over, you know, are his crews going to be able to make it? Are they going to be successful? And that's and even though he's hearing pushback from some of the folks, particularly the air cruisers, you might imagine, he's confident in his analysis that Japan doesn't have the capability for nighttime fighters to sh- to go up in the skies. That their their anti aircraft guns are they're not there at that, for those kinds of altitudes, and that because after so many missions at high altitudes, that coming in low and at night, it's going to be like an aerial sucker punch, and the Japanese are not going to know what hit them. Element of surprise will be his key factor. Okay. So let's go over Tokyo. So that mission takes off at sunset on March 9th from the Mariana Islands. And he's literally sending 94% of all of his planes up to Tokyo. And so those airmen are all convinced that this is a suicide mission, that here they are, they're going in. At, they're literally going from previous missions at 30,000 feet to as low as 5,000 feet. I mean, they're going in just above, literally the the the, the, the almost the rooftop, so to speak, of the uh, of the capital, and so they have that long flight all the way up there to play that out in their How minds. How many miles is it from? The- oh gosh, fifteen hundred miles. So that's it's a fourth. The the, the plane has four thousand mile range. So yeah, th- there's a little bit of cushion, but. Yeah, Not exactly. Much. But it's a long flight up there. I mean, so they're going to take off at sunset, you know, at 6 p.m., 6.30 p.m., and they're, and they're not going to arrive over Tokyo until a little after midnight. So those air crews are flying that whole distance. I mean, it is an aerial armada of planes just heading that way. In the and they're darkness. coming from three different islands. Right? Coming from three different islands. I mean, in take that many planes taking off, even if they're, they're taking off at just under a minute intervals, it still takes over two hours to put them all in the air. So it's a massive, massive you know, armada flying. So there. there really isn't a lot of wiggle room in terms of the first planes that take off no. because they're holding until everybody catches up, right? No, no. Once they take off, they go. They I mean, go. The, the idea that there's no more formation flying, this is going to be okay, individual that's, planes. Okay, that's important. Okay. Yeah. And so, but he still, you know, LeMay still wanted to make sure that there wouldn't be anybody running into one another in the sky. So like, you know, each of his different uh, wings would, would fly at different altitudes. This one would go at 5,000, another would go at 6,000, another would go at 7,000, just so he had some aerial spacing between them all to, to prevent just that. And of course, you know, we in Tokyo, of course, it, by the time the planes arrive, it's a little after midnight that night. And it's important to look at kind of what, what life has been like in, in Tokyo up until that moment as well. And you have a, a number of Japanese accounts that you talked about. What, I do. What was going on then? Japan, you know, by this point in the war, uh, I mean, the whole social fabric in Japan is really beginning to unravel. I mean, the uh, the, the nation's had so many de- defeats at this point. This America's submarine blockade has cut off the ability for oil and supplies to get in. So you're, you're, you're seeing... Uh, a lot of hunger amongst the population. Um, there's no no additional clothing, blankets, and things like that. And of course, even firewood is scarce at this point. And so, as you note, this has been an incredibly brutally cold winter. And so, it had just snowed in Tokyo a few days earlier. And so, families literally with blackout restrictions, they ate dinner shortly after sunset, and they went to bed. And so, that night in Tokyo, most families have bedded down already, gone to sleep when America's bombers start entering into the airspace. At 12.07, on the morning of the 10th at that point, the first bombers drop their bombs on Tokyo. And that begins what what goes on for over a couple of hours for all these planes. Remember this huge armada coming all the way in. You know, one after the other flying in and dropping those bombs. Are they hitting one area of Tokyo or there were three, weren't there several districts that they were hitting? Yeah, there were four main target areas inside this rectangle and they, of course, were spread out. So the idea being that you could sort of blanket the majority of this 12 square mile area. And these bombers are wildly successful. 
I mean, these these bombs start falling, uh, and within within thirty minutes, the flames have have grown to such a level in Tokyo that the Tokyo Fire Department is is helpless. I mean, they can't even respond at this point. You know, we talked about earlier just how dense it was. So when these fires start spreading, they quickly meld together to create even bigger fires. So within about a half hour, you end up having a fire that spreads across several city wards. I mean, so imagine, I mean, like huge neighborhoods, so to speak. And and so this becomes just a a huge inferno. And of course, it's, it's you know, the, the, as the hot air rises and it's pulling in the cold air from the sides. I mean, it's it's powerful enough that it's it's toppling cars. But it's hey, toppling. The, hey, there there are rivers. People can jump in and get away from the fire. Except right? for the fact that it's there's the, the canals, the shallower canals begin to boil, and so the, the heat is so intense. And that's the thing that's you have to remember is in, in a firestorm like this, the heat can vary within from from one place to a hundred feet away. It can vary by hundreds of degrees. And so you really have, and of course what happens as this firestorm gets bigger and bigger, it then becomes like a tidal wave of fire. It's because, and it's moving leeward across the city. So well, there are accounts of just all the heated air is that people become human torches. I mean, they, not that any napalm touches them, but the heated atmosphere sets them on fire. Exactly, because your, your clothing begins to burn. It just the, the air is so hot, your hair begins to burn, your eyelashes. And of course, as this fire is getting bigger and bigger, the sparks and the ash are raining down everywhere. And so it's, it's literally raining sparks. That's, all over Tokyo. So that's the name of your book, Black Snow. Yeah, that's was, the, was that a term that the Japanese used? It, it it was, and it's actually it's a term that shows up from some of the texts at that point. You know, uh, contemporary texts from that time period. So yeah, and so that's the as these sparks are raining down, they're creating more and more fires, and it and it just it, it's feeding on itself. And so to imagine, and when I was working on the book, I spent several weeks in Tokyo. And I interviewed a number of survivors of the firebombing who uh, who happened to survive. A lot of them were children at the time, and because I, I was really interested, I wanted to get the story of what it was like on the ground. Uh, what what is it like in this kind of, of, of firestorm? And and, uh, and 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 that's the thing is you to understand what it's like. It's it, it's loud. I mean, that was the thing that everybody kept saying is it's. When you're on the ground, it's like a freight train. I mean, a fire of that size makes so much noise. And of course, all the residents are trying to escape at this point, and they're bringing all their belongings with them. I mean, and so they're they're grabbing things that are precious to them and whatnot. And as they're trying to go down these little narrow alleyways and things like that, you reach these huge choke points that we talked about earlier. And of course, then people bottleneck and they can't get through, and then the fires overtake them. Some of the people. Um, sought safety in some of the schools and the concrete buildings, train stations, schools, places like that. And they were initially safe in those kind of environments because, you know, the uh, the fires couldn't get them. But that they were only safe for so long because when the fire is that hot, and one of the accounts that I read from some of the Japanese documents I had, they could see the fires closing in on the school. And then the glass in the windows begin to melt. I mean, the fire's so hot that the window melts. And you have hundreds of people inside auditoriums, classrooms, offices, bathrooms. And once it, it melts, then the, the, that, that fast-moving air and the sparks penetrate inside. And it, people start erupting in flames. Hallways become chimneys. Staircases become chimneys. And so literally by the time it's all over, I mean, entire like auditoriums full of, filled with people were left. It's just ashes and bones in some cases. Uh, and so really, nowhere in Tokyo was safe. People who were in open areas um, often tried to flee to the river, the Sumida River, which is the dominant river all there. Parks. There were some beautiful parks. There were parks, but the dead grass all began to turn into flames. Their luggage burned. You know, people jumped into the water. There's toxic gases as well as that go along with a fire of this magnitude. Well, you, you, talk, you frequently talk about people being carbonized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, there, there are accounts where literally, and, and you look at the photographs that were shot the next day, it's just bodies are just, just looks like charcoal. And one of the accounts I read of a Japanese uh, rescue worker, you know, they had found a, a huge chunk of what appeared to be like like charcoal and, and, and it was in the bathtub of a home. And when they started to try to pry it apart, they realized it was a family of five people. Uh, who had sort of melted together, so to speak. Uh, and mm. so that's, I mean, and, and you had cases too where, not to be too graphic, but where people's internal organs, they, they boil and the chest would split open. And so it, 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 the heat is that intense. 
Um, and so, as you can imagine, in the days and the weeks afterwards, identifying victims becomes just this huge challenge for families and Japanese authorities. Once the success of this raid reached back to this country, what was the reaction both to fish, both official and by the general public? Well, of course, you know, LeMay was stunned. I mean, it had far exceeded what he had ever hoped for. And of course, back in Washington, senior military leaders were worried that the American public might react negatively to this. And so they were monitoring editorial pages and radio broadcasts uh, for that kind of pushback. And, and there wasn't any. In fact, Time Magazine said, you know, properly kindled Japanese cities will burn like the autumn leaves. And so LeMay interprets that as a green light. And he begins to replicate what he did with Tokyo across dozens of Japanese cities. I mean, night after night, burning them to the ground. And the reaction is basically, this is revenge, not just for Pearl Harbor, but there had already been horror stories of the, the treatment of American prisoners of war, of the civilians in the Philippines. So... No punishment was too harsh. Exactly. I mean, the Japanese, I mean, America done a great job of promoting the stories of the Bataan Death March and things like that. And, and of course, the sort of the, the emotion of Pearl Harbor was still felt years later. So that there was no love lost between America and, and, and Japan. And so there, there wasn't any pushback. I mean, editorially, some newspapers were saying not just that, or first of all, the Jap- that Japan as a nation should be no longer exist, and then the Japanese people should be eradicated. I mean, very, I mean, incredible statement. No, it really is. And, and it really speaks to just sort of that animosity that was still felt throughout that war. And, and, you know, part of that is, I mean, the United States had done a really good job of sort of weaponizing propaganda about everything that the Japanese did, you know, their, their brutality and things like that was made, was made aware to the American public. The atrocities in the Battle of Manila, Bataan Death March, things that had happened in China, Nanking, all of that was known by the American public and helped shape public opinion. Well, despite the fact that many Japanese cities, not just Tokyo, were being basically totally destroyed, I mean totally destroyed, the Japanese government still doesn't bend. Exactly. And, and they know they're going to lose the war, but they're, they're holding on to this sort of just outdated idea that if they can just have one last victory, they can have a better position at the negotiating table yeah. for surrender. And the Russians will do it for them. Exactly. And of course, none of that comes to fruition. And, uh, and of course, all of that then builds up to August 6th with the atomic attack on Hiroshima. All right. LeMay knows it's going to happen, but he doesn't have control this time. No, he doesn't. He has to plan the operation and whatnot, but he he personally isn't wildly in favor of it because he knows that this new technology, the atomic bomb, is going to take the spotlight off of all his hard work with the firebombing of Tokyo. And, and to a large extent, he's right. I mean, everybody knows Hiroshima today, but very few people know about what happened in Tokyo. And 105,000 people died that night. I mean, that's more than the 80,000 who initially were killed in Hiroshima. And so LeMay, even though he carries out the mission, he helps organize it and get it off the ground and whatnot, he's personally like, well, we'd, we'd already won the war anyway. My, my guys had already burned up all the cities. Japan's capability of fighting was over, you know. But it, some of that's professional jealousy and whatnot. So, Looking back on it, your judgment on the raid over Tokyo? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I, precision bombing simply wasn't going to work. Hansel had demonstrated that. Had they continued precision bombing at the rate they were doing, I mean, there just simply wasn't a solution. So, I mean, and that, that was why LeMay was brought in, I mean, and, to find and, that and, way. And one thing we did not drop into the equation is that before dropping the A-bomb, the green light had already been given to plan for an invasion of the islands. Exactly. To go forward. Exactly. And, you know, you had General Marshall, who, of course, you know, was an old school army guy who was convinced that victory only came by boots on the ground. And Europe was that case. I mean, even after all the air war by the British and the Americans, we still had to invade France and take village after village, town after town. So even though LeMay and Arnold had said, we can defeat them by air, no one 100 percent believed that. And so, yeah, the decision had been made. Uh, We were going to invade. And, you know, and that's the, that's the reality. I mean, you know, LeMay, um, had LeMay not been the one to switch to firebombing, if, if he'd held to precision bombing, someone else would have been brought in to replace him. I mean, eventually America was moving in that direction, that we were going to burn Japanese okay. cities. And, then and, in terms, and in terms of his military career, capped off in the 1960s when he was appointed by President Kennedy, what was his title? Air Force um, Chief Staff. Yeah. 
Yeah, he uh, LeMay was never um, he did not belong in a political arena. I mean, his where he was best was in a combat situation and he simply couldn't evolve from a combat leader to a Washington political leader. And, and it showed. I mean, he was a, he did, had disastrous relations with the uh, with the White House. He ultimately ran an unsuccessful vice presidential candidate with George Wallace. I mean, he uh, it just didn't pan out very well for him in the end. Um. And what about Hap Arnold? Yeah, you know, Hap Arnold, um, he gets his independent Air Force. I mean, in 1947, that's approved. And he uh, retires, heads out west to California. He doesn't live a lot longer. I mean, the stress of the war, he had four heart attacks during the course of the war, you know, and he's finally felled uh, just a few years after the war's end. Uh, but he's out living his retirement in California on a ranch out there. Okay. Well, all I've got to say is after having read Black Snow, just the same way I felt after reading Rampage. You have told an incredible story. As a historian, I kind of knew about it, but quite frankly, I knew more about the Doolittle Raid, and I knew about Hiroshima and Nagasaki than I did about March the 9th, 1945, which I think probably was an event that really did change the course of the war in the Pacific. James, any last word for our listeners before we sign off? Uh, yeah, thanks so much uh, for, for tuning in, and thanks so much, uh, Dr. Egger, for having me on. It's always a treat to be on uh, our show. Next, Your next project? I'm looking at a project maybe on those three pivotal days between August 6th and August 9th uh, of the war when we, when we escalated beyond firebombing to the atomic attacks. All right. Well, James Scott, author of Black Snow, Curtis LeMay, The Firebombing of Tokyo, and The Road to the Atomic Bomb, Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thanks so much for having me. This is Walter Edgar. It was a pleasure to have James Scott back on the show. I must say, as a historian, he has a very gripping style. He grabs you. Black Snow is not exactly a pleasant story, but it's an incredible story of an event that literally changed the war in the Pacific and the one that frequently gets overlooked. Most folks, when you look at the history of the war in the Pacific, particularly with Japan, you think about Doolittle's raid, the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and on Nagasaki. But truly, it was the firebombing raid over Tokyo on March the 9th, 1945, that really did change the nature of the war in the Pacific and helped bring the war closer to its end. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.